Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. What's the first brand in your life that had an impact on you? Well, this is one of those you just go with a visceral answer, right? Go for um, it. Probably Barbie. That's what I thought of. <laughs> I don't know. I played with Barbies for a long time. And so it's really funny because I think, you know, like first they're dolls, but then they became these like vessels for imagining what I could be like as an adult. But I don't know. That was the first one I thought of. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it. And the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, But the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest on this episode of the CMO Podcast is Marissa Falberg, who's had a simply amazing career path. Marissa started out in advertising at Saatchi & Saatchi, and then she flipped over to the client side. She's worked at Revlon, Unilever, Estee Lauder, Taco Bell, and now Lowe's. In this episode of the podcast, we talk about the influence of the Estee Lauder company on Marissa's leadership and her career. We also talk about her time at Taco Bell, where she built on the brand's trends and momentum, elevating it to a true lifestyle brand. At the time of this recording, Marissa was transitioning from her role as CMO of Taco Bell to her, at the time, unannounced new role of Chief Brand and Marketing Officer at Lowe's. This is my conversation with Marissa Thalberg. Well, I am really looking forward to this podcast. Uh, You know, and full disclosure for our listeners, uh, I've known Marissa for many years. I worked with you when you were at the Estee Lauder companies, and we're going to talk a bit more about that. So I've had a bit of a front seat, I think, in your development as a leader. And you are a remarkable, remarkable human being, a, a, an amazing leader. And I hope in this podcast to just uh, get some of your insights on who you are and what you do and what makes Marissa Marissa. So you're ready for that? I am so ready. Okay. Well, we're going to go back to your college education. So we're going to oh, jump way, way okay. back to Brown University where you studied American civilization. And you came out of Brown and went into advertising. So I think your first job was at Saatchi and Saatchi, it was. Which, was a, which, which was a big ad agency for P&G, where I worked for many years. Mm-hmm. So would you start your career today at an ad agency? Wow. Uh, 
That is an interesting question because the, the answer is I don't know. Um, I had a very fork in the road moment at, in that senior year of college when everyone's figuring out what they're going, you know, wanting to do. I thought I wanted to be in broadcast journalism. And, but I knew it was something communications. I had done a lot of before interning was like the thing to do the way it is now. For I have a college student myself, it's very different. I just had a hunger to learn and to work and to be in this, you know, this world. And I had an opportunity to go interview at a TV station in Plattsburgh, New York, which is up by Lake Niagara Falls. Sure. And they told me that the weatherman at the station worked at McDonald's part-time to make ends meet. And I thought, oh God, I don't know, Plattsburgh and... Uh, and then I had these two opportunities to work at big ad agencies in New York, and, and I was going to make $22,000 a year with wow. a $1,000 signing bonus. So uh, totally dating myself. But, you know, I think there was a dynamism and an energy then. And the, the question I would have back to your question is, are agencies today the training grounds that they were to actually become great marketers and great thinkers and great leaders that they, they frankly were then? I mean, you're right, Saatchi and Saatchi, that's kind of big blue chip businesses. You were a P&G person or you were a Johnson & Johnson person. I happen to be on the J&J &J side and worked on Tylenol, which is a really big wow. deal back then. Uh, it sounds a little funny today, but it was in terms of you went through this very sophisticated management development program. Um, it was like a, a little mini MBA in this very dynamic world. So uh, the short answer is if, if there were environments that still replicated that, I think it's a great place to learn. But if it's just about pushing out the work, maybe not as much. Marissa, you were at Saatchi and & Saatchi, and then you went to J. Walter Thompson, and you were in advertising for several years working for amazing clients. So what's one story or what, what's one lesson in that early time in your career that kind of helped define you as a leader then? Well, I think um, I realized, and, and this is why I was a little bit demuring on you know, what it is to be in an agency today is at a very young age, I was, I don't, I think I appreciate now what a privilege it was to really be invited to the table with their, the most senior leaders of both of these companies. And it was, and I don't know if this is unusual or not, but I was participating in a pretty advanced strategic level. In fact, I remember um, with Clairol, so Clairol was was the parent company, and of all these hair color brands that we led, from um, uh, oh gosh, Ultras to Nice and Easy, to all these brands that you know were were at you know at home hair color brands, and at the age of gosh, I guess twenty four or twenty five, I was the one you know getting to craft this. Uh, you know, strategic work on what the relationship to the parent company brand should be to the individual brands. And I really loved that. I loved the fact that I was getting to participate in this really thoughtful, exciting way. And I realized that was the part that turned me on most, um, less the sort of feeling like uh, moving the advertising through the production process. That was fun, but that wasn't really what made me hum. What made me hum was sort of being in the real thinking and creative inspiration process. And I think in some ways that's what made me realize I wanted to move to the client side because I wanted to be more hands-on with that. With the strategy. So you, after six years, you jumped to Revlon. 
So that was a you know that was a big move. So were you were you ready for that? Was it a tough transition? You know, I did something very briefly in between, and it's a good little story. So I'll tell you about mm-hmm. it. Um, I going back to your question about college and the TV producer thing, uh, or TV host thing. I don't think I ever really got that out of my system. But I also was, you know, just looking at the landscape of media and culture. And that's always been so interesting to me. And I had a good friend at the time, this is in the 1990s, where business news on cable was exploding. So you had CNBC, and then CNN launched their own 24 hour news channel called FN. And I was talking to a friend who was at CNBC. And I said, I don't understand why you don't cover, diversify your programming and cover more of the world of marketing and media and advertising. Just like if you read the New York Times, that was, you know, and this is, of course, pre-internet, you'd go to the New York Times and read the media section, the advertising section. I said, you've got 24 hours of news to fill. Why is it only Wall Street? And he said, well, that's an interesting point. Why don't you go write a programming proposal? And I said, well, I don't know how to do that. And he said, well, figure it out. And that is what I did. I came up with this idea for a show called AdBeat and I sent it cold and I got offered a job and I turned it down because I didn't want to go to Secaucus, New Jersey. I was you know, wow. really young. And then this thing called Dow Jones Television launched in New York and I dusted it off and I sent it cold. And the managing director of this new you know, station calls me and he said, who are you? And I, you know, was the point was I wasn't connected. I wasn't an experienced television person. I had an idea and I articulated it well. And lo and behold, uh, he also offered me a job and I left advertising and I left my window office and I was an account supervisor and I felt a little bit important at that point. And I started over as a TV producer and it was, uh, it was a wild ride until and the station wound up being sort of sold off and I I realized I didn't actually like the lifestyle of being a TV producer because all these smart people I met were having these sort of nomadic experiences going from uh various shows and I I realized it wasn't actually the career path for me and that's when I wound up back at Revlon but I'll tell you the best part about that experience was I was in some ways, totally unqualified to be a TV producer. And I was working with all these very experienced people. And I think they questioned while I was there, why I was there. But I realized the technical parts are what I didn't know. But what I learned in advertising wasn't dissimilar. Like, what do we do? We're storytellers, right? We think about an audience. We think about Mm -hmm. what content we need to curate for them. And it was literally packaging that up and telling a story. And I think that was maybe one of my first really profound experiences of learning. Everyone can show you when you do something different, why it's different. The art is finding the commonalities and connecting the dots and uh, and realizing that expertise is more lateral than we sometimes believe it may be. So if you had made a different choice, you could be Becky Quick right now. <laughs> yeah, I would have yeah. I would have said Katie Couric back then. <laughs> yeah, right, right. You know, it's interesting though, uh not to get too far off on this, but I've talked to CNBC recently as well about how they don't cover marketing and advertising and and brand related things as much as they should. I know it's a financial network, but at the end of the day, the marketing people and the, you know, they they create the demand, they create the ideas, they create the innovation, they create the brands. It's endlessly interesting. It's really important. We don't do it well enough or we'd have more growing brands. So I think they should spend more time on it. I agree. And I think that... that you, the, so you were prescient. Gro- 
I, I guess so. And your word growth, which I know is a big word for you, is exactly right. Is there so, I mean, as I've been playing around a little bit, I've been doing some some work in the private equity world right now. I mean, there's such a focus in companies and boards on, you know, the financial engineering. And I think we as marketers are the ones that think about growth and what business doesn't want growth. So I couldn't agree more. So you left your TV producer dream behind because you kind of experienced it and realized it wasn't exactly the right thing for you. And you went to Revlon. You, you went to the client side. So right. Rev, that was an interesting company at that time. So tell me about that choice, why, and what was a major lesson you took away from that experience, your first one on the client side? Yeah, it was. It was a client-side role, but it was a little bit of a hybrid because Revlon had an in-house advertising agency. So the appeal for it was, so I was still, uh, a, you know, a little bit more centered purely in advertising than I knew I ultimately wanted to be, but it got me into the client side. It was back in beauty, which I liked. Um, and so I really, I really liked it, uh, for that very much. And, um, I think again, you know, the lessons there were, um, more about when you're, um, when you have a great work ethic and you're hungry and you're willing to take on more, oftentimes those opportunities do materialize. So I started out working on, you know, one piece of the business and then it just kept adding and adding and, and just, you know, raising your hand and wanting more. And, and, and again, even getting into more of the strategic part. So when I think back on the parts that I loved, the, the parts that stick out are, you know, getting to work on trying to figure out how Revlon could have a meaningful skincare business and writing concepts for that. And that was never in my job description. Um, but it was just how I kept shaping and adding and getting to, um, you know, having the capacity and, and desire to do more. That's probably what I remember most from that period. You stayed on the client side. You went from Revlon to Unilever to Surefit, and then to Estee Lauder. And Estee Lauder was your longest time and, and, and probably, you know, your, your most important experience, you know, I'm, I'm assuming. And you were VP of Digital Content Marketing Worldwide. And that's where I got to know you well. So I, I'd like you to talk about that time at Estee Lauder. And, you know, how did it change you? How were you a different leader coming out of there? Because uh, that was, you know, your major experience on the client side before moving to Taco Bell. And and it's a remarkable company on so many levels, and we could spend the rest of the podcast on that. But I'd like to hear how that how it changed you, that experience. Yeah, I, I agree. I would say the looking back now, I'd say the three most seminal chapters for me were I would go back to the Unilever Cosmetics International, Calvin Klein uh, cosmetics, which became Unilever Cosmetics. And I was there for several years. And, you know, it, it's just funny how time changes perspective. I mean, I felt like I'd been working for such a long time, but I was 30 and I was head of global advertising and I had this big team and a lot of responsibility. And I, I loved that chapter. It was incredible. Um, Estee Lauder Company is absolutely the second. And then the third would be my, my tenure at Taco Bell. So Estee Lauder, you're right, was the longest. And it was very interesting in that um, it brought different streaks of, I, I think, my personality and my career together in a surprising way. Um, because I'd also, in a bit of a more entrepreneurial way, found an organization called Executive Moms 
through this period. And so in some ways uh, had gotten, become a bit early in digital, going back to the Unilever Cosmetics days. And then, uh, you know, what I did at, um, at Surefit, which was omni-channel before anyone even knew that was a word. <laughs> Same with Executive Bombs was like a social media idea before social media. And suddenly I'm at the Estee Lauder Companies, which is this big, established, complicated, you know, global company with a big portfolio of, uh, you know, world-class prestige beauty brands. And I have this role that's totally undefined. So I'm coming in to be, I mean, some people call an entrepreneur, um, so I had what effectively was the first real corporate marketing role in the company at that time, and certainly the first, you know, executive digital marketing role. And just to kind of give this a little bit of a so timestamp. What, what, yeah. what year was that, Marissa? I was just going to say, so this is 2007. And to give that a little bit of a timestamp, because it's hard to remember, no one even said social media yet. We called it Web 2.0. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. I do. Um, so I got there and again, one of those life lessons of there's the job description and then there's the, you know, assessing the opportunity, especially in a new role and figuring out what the real job is. So the, the, the job description was take this sort of growing portfolio of e-commerce businesses. So all the brands, you, you know, even 2007 had a really, you know, a nice growing online business, Clinique.com, Estee Lauder.com, uh, et cetera and help um, professionalize and upgrade how these brands were marketing to drive business, which it was scary and interesting and working on a corporate level. And I started figuring that out and, you know, starting to build a, a small team. But as I'm making my way around the company, I'm realizing that the, you know, to me, the bigger white space opportunity is the brands themselves are not really thinking about the changing nature of marketing. It was still very traditional. It was very much... Uh, you know, we advertise in magazines and we have our department store distribution. And it wasn't that I was so prescient, but it just did seem like uh, the world was changing fast and, and the company needed help with that. And that became my role. I became a bit of the company's chief digital and social and new media evangelist. And it was incredible. It's hard Mar Marissa, and fun. Let me stop you on that one, because that is such a hard thing to do in a company. Yes. To be a change agent. Yes. With a company that has an established practice of doing business and, by the way, is successful. Mm -hmm. So, what did you learn in creating the case for change, to enlisting people to work with you on this, you know, to change a little bit of, a, a bit about how they view brand building and their model at a time when the business was healthy? I learned a lot about uh, both, you know, as we often do in life, sometimes we unfortunately learn by seeing behaviors that we don't think are right. And, and that forces us to think about how we would do it and then just trial and error and instinct. And I think that I saw some behaviors of trying to scare people into change by talking in like tech technology tongues and, um, and I, I started to just really think about what would be the resistance to change. And what struck me as this digital revolution was really happening was that um, it was upending how the most senior executives in an industry like this have always come to feel, right? Like if you were at the top of a business, if you were the president of the business, you got there because you basically knew the most and were the best. 
And suddenly this whole world is being disrupted in a way that really, I think in some ways, was very threatening to established leaders because it was really hard and scary to know and to understand the implications for all of us, really. And also, I think when you're in businesses built on prestige, this whole idea of the consumer having a seat at the table and the sort of like, you know, the idea of the just the idea of social media felt um, potentially very off-putting. So I had to think about two things. One, how could I be empathic to why people would resist change and try to take down some of that fear? And then also reframe the idea of digital and social media, not as um, a violation of the history of the company, but actually what the founder, Estee Lauder, would have done had she still been here. And I found this great archival photo of Estee Lauder herself, probably in the 1950s, surrounded by women at the counter where she you know, was famously sampling product. And she pioneered that. And I, I, I took that picture and I put it on a slide and I wrote this headline. I wrote, Estee Lauder was the original social networker. Beautiful. And suddenly it reframed the idea of, you know, what our, our company was about and what its history was about. It was it was one one to one marketing. It was having an intimate relationship. Yet no one thought about it that way. So I'm not saying that was like an epiphany moment, but that kind of thing actually did really help get people comfortable. And then the last part is you got to find the people who are willing to get in with you and try. And I found the early people who are willing and got some little points on the board, just getting stuff going and trying it. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual-first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. So which brand at Estee Lauder at that time was kind of leaning in with you? To try new uh, things. Yeah, there were a few for different things. And that was that was that was when it was fun because it was so scrappy. So I remember Origins was one of the first brands where um we did some interesting things. Um Mac, although it was extremely tightly controlled, there were some cool things in the early days of Facebook where they were called skins and we did some cool things with that. It's hard to even remember the world has changed so much. Um Bobby Brown, I remember, was the first brand we were able to get on Twitter and really figure out how to write the rules of, you know, are you speaking in her voice? Are you speaking as the team? So we did some things that were really early back then of sort of signing tweets. So you knew like it was like you felt like it was a makeup artist or Bobby herself talking to you. I remember Legal actually wanted to pre-approve every tweet before it went, which of course is unthinkable today. <laughs> but, you know, just sort of hacking through the jungle of resistance and 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 jumping over those those barriers because it was it was really wild uh, at that point. You could argue it still is today in a different way. And but it was really um, it was fun starting to get those things going. I remember that part very well. So in your eight years at the Estee Lauder companies, what are you most proud of? 
You know, it's hard to answer that question in that it really was such an amalgamation of things, but um, I would say that uh, there are a few things that stand out in my mind. I, I remember uh, I, it struck me probably about two or three years in that the company really was progressing and that I wanted to, I, I felt like we needed a moment to really signal that the company got it, as silly as that sounds. And so I, I, I pitched that I wanted to throw like a world-class digital conference for the company. And I thought that would be important on two levels. I thought it would be great for the organization. I also thought uh, while the industry was sort of exploding, it was going to send an important message to the industry that the Estee Lauder companies really met, like was here, like to play. And uh, and so that's what I did. I, I did an extracurricular project. I threw this unbelievably great digital conference. We had 500 executives or more from across the uh, country, of course, because it's it's the beauty industry. The flowers had to be perfect <laughs> along with the content. And um, and I just remember having like it's very rare that you can feel a page turning in a business and in a company. And, uh, and that was a very palpable feeling. People who are, you know, longstanding jaded executives wrote me these like emotional emails saying they just felt, you know, they'd never felt so energized. They felt the company moving into the future. Um, and it also sent a message to big partners like Google and Facebook and others that we were like, we were for real. So that was, that was a very exciting moment because it was so uh, clear. I'd say other things I remember just being able to work um, with Evelyn Lauder, who subsequently passed away. She was one of the founders or creators rather of the Pink Ribbon and breast cancer awareness was the overarching, still is overarching philanthropic cause of the company. So working on on all the sort of uh, modern marketing and social marketing for that, doing things that were really early. And now we, we think about social causes and social media um, you know, everyone's talking about purpose, but doing that then was was really personally meaningful to me. And then probably the last one I think about was uh, created what became the most successful YouTube channel in beauty. And beauty, by the way, continues to explode on YouTube. And it was called I Love Makeup. And uh, that was just, again. So just at the doing... time, it was the most successful channel in the entire category. I believe so, yes. And it was very, uh, in some ways it was controversial for the company because it did involve doing things on this very editorial level and interjecting multiple products, which was very, very much not the way the company typically went to market. But I ju just felt like that's how women shop. You know, they have multiple products in their makeup mm -hmm. bag. And uh, working with people who've just exploded, we're already becoming big, like um, Lily Singh, whose who's, uh, social media name is Superwoman, or um, uh, Miranda Singh. So, I mean, that's just not people that typically you would have thought of as beauty industry personalities, but just doing unbelievable content much less expensively than you might typically have done. And it just, and having it be shoppable, it was just uh, really different and fun. And uh, Well, you had a great run there, and the company has had a remarkable run. I mean, it's been enormously successful and, uh, and, and really, a, uh, I think, a role model for a lot of companies who are trying to respect their past but move into the future. But I want to ask, you surprised everyone about four years ago 
and you moved across the country. You left the Estee Lauder companies. You went to Taco Bell. That's quite a shift. So <laughs> why, why did you do that? What was it? You know, was it the location? Was it the the free food? Was it you know, <laughs> was it the opportunity to be in a f- totally different category? What 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 was your motivation? Yeah, I think um, I think there was a bit of a recognition, and I'm only using words that the company has used with me that um, in some ways I had kind of outgrown the opportunity at Estee Lauder and the, and their readiness to keep doing all the things that I envisioned doing it was it was becoming complicated and I really wanted a bigger operating role um and I never expected it to be Taco Bell and truth be told I wasn't even a Taco Bell consumer but there was something about the brand that captured my imagination uh in that it was you know big and interesting and satin culture and um I was much more fearful about the transition from New York to California than the transition from beauty to fast food. That was the part that everyone thought was, you know, the crazier part, but to me So why were you fearful about that? What what was your trepidation? The relocation part? Mm-hmm. Um because that was out of my comfort zone and out of my family's comfort zone. Um we had always been New Yorkers. Our whole sense of identity and life was in New York and so it was uh, it was scary to pick that up and, and relocate. So that was the harder part emotionally than, frankly, uh, considering the change in industry. Uh, although I think too often industries do get a little too insular about thinking, well, if you haven't worked in QSR, you couldn't possibly be a, a QSR expert. And I do think it took some courage on the part of the company and some courage on the part of me to be like, nope, honestly, we're just it's going to work. And, uh, and I, I just believe in that wholeheartedly in the, for the right people in the right contexts. So do you, what's your favorite order now at Taco Bell? Because I bet you're a consumer now. <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> they say you gain the Taco Bell 10 or 20 and it's no joke. <laughs> <laughs> so what's your go-to order? Um, I have more than one, but I will say one of the, uh, the sort of still un, unfulfilled uh, stories of the brand that needs a little bit more um, awareness and we were working on it is how amazing uh, Taco Bell is as a destination for vegetarians or flexitarians. So you might not actually be a vegetarian, you just want like alternatives to meat. And so, um, you know, you can substitute anything at Taco Bell. So there's this iconic product called the Crunchwrap, but if you substitute the beef for black beans, it's actually really satisfying. So uh, when I want something that sort of feels indulgent, but sort of feels good, that's usually my go-to order. So I'm going to ask you sort of one of these impossible questions. Oh, I want, boy. I want, you, I want you to compare and contrast the cultures at Taco Bell and Estee Lauder. And what could each one learn from the other? Wow. I told you it was an impossible question. That is impossible. But an interesting one because both are really successful and both have have changed. Yes, that is very true. And um, the interesting, uh, I'm I'm maybe hedging a little just to think about your question, but the interesting thing about Taco Bell is Taco Bell is also part of a larger parent company, uh, which is Yum Brands. But um, but Taco Bell is you know it's, it's autonomous headquarters in Southern California, and Yum is based in. Uh, it's actually now based uh, just outside of Dallas in Plano. So. Um, so contrasting Taco Bell with Estee Lauder companies, 
you know, the first thing that comes to my mind is they really are like Estee Lauder feels like the personification of New York and Taco Bell in some ways is very much the personification of California, both in really good ways. Mm -hmm. Um, There is a different level of, uh, you know, and I'm thinking of Estee Lauder companies in in the headquarters, but of course it is now a composite of brands and globally. So it's, it's almost unfair because, you know, if you're working in one of the downtown brands or Aveda uh, or or Smashbox in LA, you might have a really different answer, just like I'd have a different answer of what Taco Bell's culture is versus Yum. Um, but when I think of the headquarters of Estee Lauder companies, it, it is this sort of, you know, New York cosmopolitan, a uh, little bit formal, uh, complicated, intense, energetic, cool. And Taco Bell has this like kind of great, fun, uh, creative, energetic vibe, but you know they're both the big companies with um, both attached to uh, a lot of enor- you know enormous public company pressure and you know quarterly results and figuring out how you continue to grow and evolve and maintain a great culture while you know being accountable in really competitive categories is probably what they both share in common. You joined Taco Bell four years ago, and you know at the time it was you know it's a pretty hot, trendy brand actually. And during your time there with you and your team, you've made it hotter. You know you've had twelve straight quarters of growth. You've pumped out all sorts of innovation: pop up shops with T Mobile, clothing collaboration with Forever Twenty One, a Taco Bell hotel, and you yourself have won lots of honors. You know, Business Insider, you know, most innovative CMO, et cetera, et cetera. So for our listeners, how do you do it? How do you go into a culture that was already doing well and accelerate it, pump out all this innovation, make it even more relevant? Sort of what was your playbook? What are, what are some of the things that you've done as a leader to achieve these results that others could learn from? Well, I think the biggest thing when you make a move like this is – and I've talked about this quite a bit, is I think you have to find um, how to navigate between bringing your confidence and also having the humility to really take the time to learn and ask questions and recognize that you have to learn before you can be in a position to teach. And I think uh, maybe perhaps being in the digital world really formed that instinct in me because the world's changing so fast and no one is fully an expert in all of it. So it's okay to not know. It's okay to ask questions and uh, to just really try to figure out what it all means. So for me, those first 90 days in particular were absolutely an exercise in just immersing and and taking advantage of having a newcomer's eyes to try to see things um, in a fresh and holistic way that when you're just in, you know, any executive, when you're just in the daily rhythm of the business, it's very hard to pull up and, and take it all in and say, what is the real, you know, SWOT analysis right now? What is, where are the strengths, the weaknesses, the opportunities, the threats? Mm-hmm. Like that, it, that classic paradigm is important. And that's what I did. Marissa, in your first 90 days on this listening tour, any surprises? Oh, yes. 
Very much so. And I think um, some of it had to do really, you know, it, you, what you said, Jim, is really true in that when you join an organization where the business is good, in some ways, that's as scary as uh, going to a business that isn't doing well, because, <clears throat> you know, your fear is how much when I get under the hood, am I going to see opportunity to make it that much incrementally better? I didn't know. I really didn't know what I would find and what I'd learn. And I started seeing opportunities in the team itself in terms of how to create a different level of collaboration uh, within the different functions of marketing, across functions, and then honestly, the way the agencies work together. So, you know, some of it is how you wire an organization. And I don't know that I had a playbook. I think I was just figuring it out and um, trusting my instincts and trusting what I learned. And you start to make contributions on a small level, but then identifying the gaps and and really distilling what I saw as the larger opportunity that hadn't been articulated yet as a real vision for the brand, which is to both elevate and maybe even inoculate it a little bit from the downward pressure of being a fast food brand by becoming a little bit more of a lifestyle brand. And I think um, that became a, you know, a very galvanizing, but you, ha you have to, just like I did at the Estee Lauder companies, you have to bring people along. You can't just say it. You got to bring people on that find the people that want to go on the journey with you and start getting some things going. And then over time, you still it's still always going to be a little bit of an uphill battle with the people that don't maybe don't get it as well or, uh, you know, are resistant and and success begets confidence. <laughs> what would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. So how did you make Taco Bell even more of a lifestyle brand. You know, almost every brand leader has that as an aspiration. And and certainly when you're at the Estee Lauder companies, that's a bit easier. So what what what's your advice to others who I mean, what is a lifestyle brand? How do you define it? And why is it that why is that an important objective? And what have you learned in building one? Well, I don't think every brand should aspire to be a lifestyle brand because I don't think it's right for every brand. But I think what it meant to me was this brand was already for sure sitting in culture in an interesting way. And I think that's what attracted it, me to it. But how to broaden that and I think the opportunity was to get it to have a bit of a latent meaning with, with consumers and fans that felt bigger than just the products itself. Um, and to get you to kind of identify with the brand in a really cool way. And so fast forward, um, you know, two plus years in and this idea, it started with, actually the thing that I would say it maybe started with was um, redoing the brand's logo and, and brand identity for believe it or not, the first time in 25 years. Um, and that process was really interesting because in the case of Taco Bell, the team and I that were working on it realized that the bell was one of those rare, uh, logos, if you will, in, in the world of marketing that sit 
in this lucky place where it can stand alone. You know, like you think of the target bullseye or the Nike swoosh. And so unlocking it from some of the, you know, the, the typical constraints of it always has to be represented this way, making it less corporate. Lawyers probably didn't love this so much, but and we had this in-house design team and they just were so inspired. Suddenly, like the bell became this way of just creating art. And then people wanted it, people in the company wanted t-shirts and everyone starts making all these different t-shirts. And, and it's like, aha, okay, this is, something is happening here. And then, so thinking of the brand as, as having the ability to live as fashion was really exciting to me. And I also like the business opportunity of, huh, there might be an even additional little revenue layer here of thinking about merchandise and licensing. These things take a while to bake, though. And you start off, you know, and, 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 and the art, I think, is being able to have the capacity to try some things that are scrappy while you're still you know, worrying about day-to-day same-store sales growth and driving this, you know, this engine of a big brand, which of course I had to learn and really getting into how you market value and how you strategize innovation and, and sort of the pillars of the brand while you're also finding ways to diversify and expand it. That's the real trick. How do you, in this crazy competitive category you're in, where you you measure your traffic and your sales really every minute, every hour, every day. Yeah. How what what have you learned about building a differentiated brand in a very very cluttered category? You know, even the subcategory of kind of Mexican food is very cluttered, and then you expand that yeah. into quick serve. What are your lessons in building a a differentiated experience, a differentiated brand? Well, I think the biggest thing that I've, uh, I, I just think I tend to gravitate to these, you know, almost Socratic questions. <laughs> Maybe it goes back to my Brown education of, you know, I, like what is at the heart of the challenge here? And it, it, oftentimes they wind up being paradoxes, but I find those really interesting and they unlock good thinking. So the first one for me was how could we be both a mass brand and a cult brand? And then the evolution of that idea uh, is what are the fundamentals? And I think this this idea might be true in almost any business is what are the fundamentals um, that you need to honor? You know, like you can't you can't in the interest of differentiating, throw it all out because there are certain things that are so fundamental to what makes the business work and, and the relationship with the consumer that you have to honor them, like being a value brand in QSR. That is a fundamental and then what are the conventions that you actually want to defy because you're you're not uh you're not disrupting otherwise so value is actually a great example of being both where um you know honoring really great price points for this consumer when you realize how many Americans live paycheck to paycheck very different than being in the you know the luxury or prestige world you have to really honor and hold that up but the way to tell the story of value, I felt, was where we could disrupt and defy. And, and one of the things that I take a lot of pride and pleasure in is the marketing that we are doing around our, our dollar products is the most sophisticated advertising you'll see in the industry. And I, I love that surprise. Like, that's, that's interesting to me. Why couldn't you do your most sophisticated marketing for your least expensive products and make people feel 
like shopping the value menu isn't a compromise. It's actually desirable. That's interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think it's really, really, really smart. You know, if you can offer value and still be kind of cool and chic and trendy, that's a really great place to be. I want to spend the back end of this podcast on a series of questions that are a little bit interesting and wacky and fun just to get at who you are and who you are as a person and leader. So that's how we're going to end it. So are you ready to go? I'm ready. So what do you do, Marissa, to keep fresh and creative? I'm so bad at these speed round questions. I lied. I'm not ready. <laughs> um, I don't think I have one answer for that because mm-hmm. it's not a for it's there's no I, I don't know. I don't know what I do to stay fresh and creative. I think it's important just to be out in the world and absorbing culture and I think connecting with my daughters and seeing how they engage um, and being curious. It's as simple as that. Being curious. I love to read. Um, I'm usually reading two books at once. I love all of Malcolm Gladwell's podcasts. It was really a a thrill that he came to do one at Taco Bell, actually. Um, And then, you know, I'm... What what did he talk about at Taco Bell? He wanted to understand the history of how Taco Bell helped um, change culture in terms of introducing flavors and tastes that were not familiar to the American palate. I thought that was really cool. It was kind of a very geeky, exciting moment for us. And, um, so I've loved, I I love, I think I just love behavioral economics. That's where I get my inspiration for business because I've always been drawn. I think if you go back to what, what got me into even advertising in the first place is this intersection of business culture and psychology that I think is what we do. I love that. I think it's Mm -hmm. so interesting. It's a great answer. I got a a great feeling about how you stay fresh and creative. (laughs) Good. Okay. So So what's a brand in your life that you would miss if it went away? Um, you know, here's the funny thing. I would say, are are they the brands that would go, if I miss them, would go away, or the products? So would I miss Amazon as a brand if it went away? I don't know. But would I miss shopping on Amazon because we're all so reliant on it? I mean, it's scary, the extent sure. to which, you know, so when I think about utility in my life, Google, Amazon, uh, Apple and you know they're they've become f- a bit frighteningly indispensable. So I, I have an ambivalent answer. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. How many times a week do you eat Taco Bell? Well, I've taken a little break, <laughs> but uh, you know the fun part about working in a food brand is that really eating it is really a part of your your process. Like you have meetings with food all the time, so um, so quite often <laughs> for the past four and a half years. So, who's the person in your life who's had the greatest influence on you? Uh, this might be uh, a fairly common answer, but for me, it's really truthful is I'd have to say my mom. Um, And she, I lost my, both my parents were extremely influential. I lost my dad when I was 20 in college. So that was a very profound time in my life. Um, And my mom became just, you know, she sort of transformed into this 
you know, she was very happy being a, a wife and a mother. And she had, you know, sort of a part-time speech pathologist. And suddenly she became uh, this force to make sure that, you know, her children were protected and that she was taking care of us. And she was the most unapologetically authentic person that I've ever known. She passed away six years ago. And if you really want to know what emboldened me to go to California, it was probably that um, it was that time where, you know, she felt like she was sort of saying, now, now go, like, because she had health issues for many years. I was really close to her and she lived in Queens where I was born and grew up. And, uh, but I think what, in spite of being absolutely not corporate in any respect, I learned a lot about um, what it is to become uh, really uh, authentic and real. And I just think the older I get, the more important I, the more important I find that as a human being and also as a leader in the workplace. That's a sweet story, Marissa. Thank you. Very sweet. It's true. Yeah. So maybe one uh, one last question, and that is, uh, we could go on for a long time on this, but I just wanted to ask this last. Okay. You, you you mentioned earlier in the podcast you started something about twenty years ago about twenty years ago called Executive Bombs. Yes. So tell me just why you did that and how you feel about it today. Well, uh, this goes back to when I became a mother for the first time in the very end of two thousand. And I was at Unilever Cosmetics at the time and living in New York. And as much as I always felt I was born to be a mother, I found the beginning very difficult. And I went to what was the only sort of new mother's luncheon in in New York City at the time. And everyone was asked to self-identify based on their name, their baby's name, what street they lived on. And the last question was, are you going back to work or not? which I think about that now. And also all these women said they weren't. And I thought, well, wait a minute, how does this work? Like, did you all marry guys who run hedge funds? This is Manhattan for God's sake. Uh, You know, and then secondly, don't you want to work? Because I really was proud to have a career, but it was, I wanted to find people like me. And I, you know, of course, went back to work after my maternity leave. And based on my job, I knew all, you know, I was very connected in the publishing industry and was having lunches with editors and, uh, and publishers of parents magazines then and said, what can I join? Just tell, I need this. And across the board, the reaction is, we don't know of anything and we don't know why we don't know of anything. You need to go start it. So I was absolutely not looking (laughs) at this point to give myself a second career, but the name and the idea of it was the most instinctive part. I just love this idea because the only other thing then was sort of working mother magazine. And that sounded a little dusty to me. And I love the idea that you could be an executive, which is this like kind of big, powerful word, and a mom, which is this warm and fuzzy word. There, there, there we go with my dichotomies again. And I love mm-hmm. the idea of, of, you know, embodying that in a really um, bold way. So the name and the brand came to me really fast. The idea of actually starting this and doing this while being a new mother myself and having a big corporate job was crazy. And it was, I was not, I didn't think of myself as being entrepreneurial. Maybe I had a streak of it, but I just didn't. So I don't know. I just put one foot ahead of the other. And because I knew what it was like to be entertained while we planned my first event and we had Ladies Home Journal sponsor, we had 150 women in a ballroom and a great guest speaker and gift bags. And it was, that was the beginning. 
And then I wanted to connect more than just an event. So the one uh, content model that appealed to me then was this email called Daily Candy. And I was like, huh, I think there's something in this idea of curating, again, words that people didn't commonly use, but curating like a nugget of content that wasn't hard to read, that just spoke to all the different aspects of a woman like me that was multidimensional. Like I didn't want to just be talked to as a mom or as an mm -hmm. executive, I wanted to be talked to as this whole woman. So there were some really, I think, pretty uh, smart insights that I had that um, maybe again, also were a little ahead of their time. This was a social media idea before social media, um, but it took off and it was quite important in New York in particular, but then based on the content nationally. And I did it for, I would say probably 13 years actively on top of my corporate career and it's still my Twitter handle and the website's still there. At a certain point, you know, it just uh, started to get a little bit more dormant as my own corporate career became even, uh, you know, more time consuming. But I'm incredibly passionate about it and still um, uh, I feel like one of the things I helped to do is change a little bit of the perception and the dialogue about how working moms are portrayed and also how we see ourselves. Fabulous story, Marissa. We're going to have to end this, which I'm sad about. But and, <laughs> and I thank you. I thank you for getting up so early. But I do want to ask you one last question: Who else would you like? Who would you like to hear on the CMO podcast? Who would be interesting for you? Uh, well, I'll tell you. One of the things that's been really helpful to me is started a little community of CMOs as like a Facebook Messenger thread. And we, we live in this tumultuous but exciting world and feeling a sense of community with people like myself has been incredibly important. It's why I love what you're doing with this podcast. So I'd say you can like, go tap that community and there are just a lot of really fabulous, interesting friends and people that I can share from, uh, I don't know if you've had them all yet, um, Carla Hassan at City. My, she would be my, great. Yeah, my my friend um, and former colleague from Lauder, who's now the CMO of Pandora Jewelry, Sharice Ford. Well, Marissa, it's time for you to get a cup of coffee. <laughs> I agree. In Southern California. Enjoy the sunshine. <laughs> enjoy the day. We Thank have a beautiful you. day in New York. So we, we send our love and thanks from New York. And this has been a real treat. I enjoyed it, too. Thank you so much, Jim. Always a pleasure. You know how much... I admire and adore you. So thanks for having me. That was my conversation with Marissa Thalberg. I really enjoyed this one. And what I loved the most was how this woman just does things. She sees an opportunity. She acts on it. She jumps into it. She takes initiative. She doesn't ask for permission. She sees an opportunity and begins acting on it. And that's why she's had a great career. That's why she's successful. And that's why I loved this episode. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.